All right, we are back. Making, I think, I don't know, his 12th appearance on the show at this juncture would be our favorite sports commentator, Sean Minton. Without any further ado, welcome back, Sean. Your only sports commentator. <laughs> at least that's what I've heard. Well, this is appropriate because for the first time in a nine-and-a-half-year run, uh, Radio Parallax was, in fact, preempted last week by a sports program. I believe it was UC Davis uh, basketball versus UC Irvine. So um, we need to I bring... watched that game. It was a blockbuster. <laughs> and congratulations to that UC school that, that won. Congratulations. That, I believe, is known as sarcasm. <laughs> Or is it irony? (laughs) (laughs) Or is it the truth? (laughs) It lies somewhere in between, doesn't it? Or all of the above. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, people... um People were wondering what happened to us. We need, to, you know, they do a good, pretty good sports program over there. Um, did you, did you go from a college uh, sports program to becoming a professional broadcaster? I actually started in high school. Oh wow! Yeah, and then I had never done play-by-play sports before. But when I got my first radio job, I lied to the program manager and I said, "Oh heck, I've done dozens and dozens. <laughs> I'd never done a single game in my life, and I did a high school basketball game, and and it was a debacle." <laughs> But I got just I got just enough of it right that they let me keep doing it. Was there a confession after that, by the way? Um, no, I think he just kind of said, you know, I thought you were going to be a little better than that. <laughs> and I said, I'll get better. I'll get better. I never, ever told them that I'd never done a game. It's just it seemed it seemed very easy at the time. You're only tracking 10 guys. It's not like a, a football game where there's 22 or anything like that. It was but it's much harder. You know, the guys that do it well, it's 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 an art. It's really much more difficult, especially like something like hockey or something where the, the pace is very, very, very quick. Well, we did compliment on last week's program, uh, um, Al, Al Michaels. He, he really did a wonderful job in the Super Bowl. He really is a, a, just an exemplary play-by-play guy. For a second there, I thought you were going to say he did that UC Davis game. I thought, <laughs> Al Michaels, wow, that must have really been a big deal. Well, you know, the thing about Al Michaels is he's been doing it forever, and, and he's the one who made the big call when the USA won the, uh, the, the gold medal in hockey in 1980. When he, at, Remember at the end of the game? I when, did not know he was on that. Yeah, he's the one who coined that phrase, do you believe in miracles? Oh. When they won the gold medal, first they beat the Russians uh, in the semifinals, and then I think it was Sweden in the finals, and... As time was ticking away, he's the one who said, do you believe in miracles? Oh. Yep. He's well, been doing it a long time. Let's talk about uh, the passing of a, of a boxing legend. We mentioned him on last week's show, and we also decided that we would uh, defer talking about the immortal Joe Frazier. But Angelo Dundee uh, passed away last week. Joe Frazier passed away a few months ago. Uh, boxing, of course, is not what it used to be, but those guys are such uh, figures. I think anyone who watched the matches they took part in will never forget some of those. Well, the great thing about Angelo Dundee, you know, obviously he had the relationship with Muhammad Ali, but but he had worked with some other fighters since then. And there are some there's some great old footage uh, when Muhammad Ali, when he was still Cassius Clay, before he had made the, the the name switch and the faith switch, with Angelo Dundee in his corner, and and they have a microphone in there, and you get to hear a lot of the conversation that goes on between those two guys, and and obviously they they were they were tight outside the ring, but he's probably the one guy that could actually you know tell Muhammad Ali slash Cassius Clay, you know how what he was doing wrong and and he would actually listen because as we know he was not the world's greatest listener but he was a he was and 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 that was a time you know you kind of hit on it doug that was a time when when it was the the sport was really the king of all sports it's before cable television before pay-per-view i mean there was a time when even when when mahali was starting out where a lot of these things you could only hear him on the radio and eventually you could see him in black and white eventually abc's wide world of sports and then that kind of trans transgressed into the the pay-per-view that that has kind of totally split apart boxing right now. But uh, 
He was a legend. You know, the cool thing about Joe Frazier, I don't know how much you wanted to get into him, but what I I would, because we didn't talk about him very much. He was an interesting guy. He's the anti-Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. You know, where Muhammad Ali uh, was very outspoken about social issues and religion and things like that, Joe Frazier never talked about that stuff. Mm -hmm. And the Thriller in Manila, which I think was their second fight, that was the one time, was it the third fight? Yeah, the final, third and final. Muhammad Ali said that he thought he was going to die after that. Literally, he... He really thought he was going to die after that fight. Well, the story is that he told Dundee to cut the cut the the gloves off him. Yep. And that and that uh, and that you know and that it, what he didn't know was that Frazier wasn't going to be able to answer the bell. Yep. Yep. And and I think that's one of the you know we see all these rivalries now that are kind of made up by the media, whether it's the WWE or <laughs> or you know the things that happen with Holyfield Tyson or the things that are happening right now with Pacquiao and Mayweather, where a lot of this stuff is all hyped up. Joe Frazier did not like Muhammad Ali. And I don't, I don't think Muhammad Ali reciprocated, but Joe Frazier liked nothing about what Muhammad Ali stood for. So when he went in there, um, he really, really disliked him. Did not like him at all. Well, when you call a guy gorilla, you know, and you bring in a little toy gorilla and like, you know, he wasn't really in on the joke. Joe wasn't. Yeah. You know. yeah. And that's too bad because a lot of the guys were. But, you know, he, he, he lived a quiet life after he got done fighting and, you know, just kind of kind of went out gracefully. I think he always thought he won that last fight. But uh, until the end, I think he was ahead on the rounds. But um, that's kind of a bummer because that was the one sport, even when I grew up, that um, in the mid-70s, I remember Wide World of Sports. And sure. I remember that fight. I remember the Foreman fight. I remember a lot of these things when it was just a this huge event that you look forward to for weeks and weeks and weeks versus now, if you don't have 55 bucks, you can't even watch a decent fight anymore. Well, back to Dundee, there's a very funny quote. I just want to play off this one. I, I just thought this was hilarious. He said he'd worked with, uh, uh, talking about Cassius Clay, coming in answering questions about uh, training, sparring, fighting. He said, and I'd worked with six champs by then, and none of them ever talked the way that kid did. And he said that, uh, that he learned his craft by, uh, he learned the game by listening to old men talk. <laughs> 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 Which I guess you can you can learn a lot by listening, as Jogi Berra once said, or something along those lines. Yeah, well, when you're you know when you're training for for Muhammad Ali, there's probably not a lot of room for you to talk anyway. But when he did talk, you know, Muhammad Ali would listen to what he had to say, and he was a smart guy. I mean, that the, there's a reason they call it the sweet science. I think a lot of people think that you just go out there and you start knocking heads, and there's just so much strategy involved in boxing. My brother. Um, growing up, boxed for the Navy National Boxing Team. He mm-hmm. was a heavyweight when he was in the Navy. Mm. He would try to explain to me the the psychology of going into it. I mean, and here's a guy. He he never boxed professionally. He you know he just did it while he was in the service. But even at that level, you know, the amount of skill, the amount of thinking, the amount of training, and the amount of psychology that went into it. I can't even imagine at the highest level. You know, there was a again. For, for people that are in their 30s or younger who have no clue what the heavyweight division used to be like mm-hmm. because you've got the, the Karolinko brothers that are kind of dominating the division now. Nobody, nobody cares about the heavyweight division anymore. But for a time, you know, if you can, if you can remember what WrestleMania 1 was like if you're <laughs> that age, that's what the heavyweight division used to be like in boxing. It was these just big-time names with... Um, with Foreman and Muhammad Ali and, and some of these other guys that we've talked about. It was just bigger than life, and they made it bigger than life on TV, too. I, I, I loved that era of sports. 
You know, I have to admit, I, I, I just missed that myself, the wide world of sports, the ones you could see, you know, on, on ABC on yep. Sundays. You know? Yep. All that stuff, again, for you kids out there in TV <laughs> land, you know, you ne- you did not used to have to pay $55 or, or go to a bar or something like that to see a fight that, you know, lasts for 15 minutes. You could just watch it on TV. And that's that's probably the biggest problem with boxing right now. Another guy passed away last week, Freddie Solomon. I know you're not a big football guy. didn't know much about, uh, about Freddie. But what struck me about all the obits was everyone said, he was such a nice guy, and it's like the, that's something that uh, wouldn't be heard a lot, I think, with a lot of wide receivers that are out there these days. Pro- oh, wide receivers? No, no. I, that's probably the one position in, in, in almost all sports right now where if you don't have a, a really awesome dance or you don't have really <laughs> something interesting to say after a game, it, the wide receiver is the epitome for me of everything that is wrong in sports because these are guys that, you know, great, they can run fast, they can catch a ball, but, you know, very rarely now will a wide receiver go across the middle to catch a ball because, you know, he knows he's going to get his block next knocked off. In the days of Freddie Solomon, you know, when I grew up with, like, the Fred Bolitnikoffs and the mm-hmm. Cliff Branches and, mm-hmm. and the, uh, the, the Don Maynards of the world, you know, those guys would do anything in whatever they needed to do to catch a football. These guys now... You know, I don't know if I can say the word be on the radio, so I won't. I'll use the word pansy instead. But a lot of these guys that are the biggest talkers are really, really the wusses when it comes to professional football. Well, you were there in the locker room with a lot of them, and I, I know that uh, I know that uh, you experienced some of this firsthand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the funniest, my, some of my greatest memories of working locker rooms, um, I remember when I was covering the Portland Trailblazers during the years they were known as the Jail Blazers. Or the, uh, the, the thing that always struck me is they had their lockers. There was, a, there was like a Gatorade uh, um, vending, not a vending machine. You know, they get free stuff out of it. Ten feet away from them, and they'd make the ball boys go get them drinks. They could take one step and get their own Gatorade, but they'd always make somebody get it for me. And for some reason, that's the, my, my main – when we talk about everything that's wrong in sports, that's my main recollection is – why can't you take four steps and get your own damn drink, you damn. lazy SOP? <laughs> God. Well, speaking of what's wrong with sports, one of our favorite topics we return to over and over and over again on the show, unfortunately, is the fact that uh, they just want to build an arena and they want to give these billionaires from Las what? Vegas a... They want to uh, build an arena? Yeah. I don't know if you've heard. But I it's have not. kind of a hot topic. Where's that? Are they putting that in Elk Grove? <laughs> well, they can't figure out where exactly they want to put it. Uh, that goes back and forth, but... Uh, any comments on the Marcos Breton column talking about how he went to Indiana and the people of Indiana didn't see these as scams or schemes, talking about the wise civic leaders investing in sports complexes and such, uh, and how we haven't done that here, and so that's why you know we're shabby next to Indianapolis. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Well, timing is when it comes to, to whether it's a bond issue or a referendum or it's trying to get the public to buy into these you know multi-hundreds-of-million-dollar arena, timing is really important. In Indianapolis... The reason that uh, that they got their their field, it's uh, gosh, it's named after an oil company, and I can't think of it <laughs> off the top of my head. But that all was a direct result of Peyton Manning and the fact that the Colts, you know, were Super Bowl contenders. They were they had been horrible for years and years. Peyton Manning basically comes in, they win a Super Bowl, they go to another Super Bowl, they lose. Um, same thing with with the Pacers. They had some good years too. The problem with what's happening with the uh, um, Sacramento team right now is if if they had been smart enough to put something together um, back when when the team was actually pretty good, 
I don't think you'd be getting as much friction right now. The problem right now is not only the fact that they want to use the public money, but the team sucks. Yeah, and they want to take, they want to give all the parking money, and they yeah. want to give them, they want to, I don't know, well, sell that, off the firstborn of the city councilman. I don't that's, know. What, and the problem with that is even when you, when you do the math on that, whether they get $100 million or $200 million or whatever they do for selling off, you know, basically what is something that, that we the people own as, as, as property. They want to sell that off to a private entity. The math still doesn't work out. I was in Seattle last week on business, and all the sports stations were all talking about how they were going to steal the Kings because they actually have funding in place. They've got an investor in place who's ready. To, uh, they've got land in place. And they're ready to go. And Don't they it, have a basketball team? No, they lost the Sonics a couple of years ago. Oh. They moved to Oklahoma City. Well, so they may not go to Anaheim. I mean, um, to hear them talk in Seattle. They're not going to go to I mean. Granted, I'm not in the know anymore. They're okay. not going to go to Anaheim for a couple of reasons. It's too close to Los Angeles. It's 40 miles, 50 miles from Los Angeles. They already have two NBA teams there. The arena that they want to play in is kind of dilapidated. And Jerry Buss and, and Don Sterling, the owner of the Clippers and the Lakers, would demand hundreds of millions of dollars wow. for stealing some of that uh, revenue from them. Because if you put a team in Anaheim, you've got people in Orange County who are now used to driving into downtown Los Angeles, going to the games, who no longer will do that. They'd probably stay and support that local team. I think what's happening in Anaheim, that, uh, that's a big smokescreen right now. And that team, if the team you know doesn't stay here in Sacramento, and I think we've got a deadline at the beginning of March. We do, for the yeah, city to a couple weeks from now. It, a decision. It's it's probably going to be a Seattle. It's probably going to be. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of some of the ar- other markets that I the, heard up there. Sean, this is the first I've heard of any of this. I'm I'm pleased to be breaking this news here on Radio Parallax. Well, it's maybe I don't know how breaking news it is, but I no, just but have, I mean if that's the, if they're all they're talking about up in Seattle, they must know something. Lots of talk up in Seattle, and they've got an investor in place. They've got land in place. Um, all they are they're waiting for is a team, and the the New Orleans Hornets. You know, they're owned by the NBA. And their lease in New Orleans runs out next year, so potentially that's another team that could be on the market. And that's a that's a team that's that uh, is kind of like Sacramento's. They're not very good right now. They're floundering. They're 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 looking for a new place too. There's a couple of other cities where I think if anything, the NBA should do some attrition right now because some of their teams are so horrendous. All right. Well, final topic here I have to throw at, out at you is uh, you know that no doubt have seen Moneyball. Mm-hmm. And I'd be willing to bet you have an opinion or two about uh, Billy Bean and uh, and Brad Pitt. It's <laughs> I cannot believe that that movie is nominated for isn't that a nominee for movie of the year? Yeah. I think so. Unbelievable! It was not that great of a movie. And, I didn't think so either. <laughs> and the, the the whole thing with Moneyball and the fact that you know he supposedly found this way of, of finding value in players that that nobody else had, you know. There's a lot of conjecture there in terms of whether or not that was really work. I mean, you, you when you look at the pitching staff that he had back then with Zito and some of these, uh, I, I mean, any good team, when you look at play, the teams that make the great playoff runs, well, there, there's a five-man rotation in baseball, but during the playoffs, you're generally down to your top three pitchers. They, they had tremendous pitching back then. So if you can find a guy who's batting 250, 260, 270, you're probably going to win a lot of games anyway because he had 15, 16, 17 game winners when it came to a starting pitcher. So, you know, all this stuff about, you know, finding value in certain players is all fine and dandy, but, I mean, he had great pitchers back then, too. You know, finding some guy who's going to bat 264, he doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Well, I just thought the mo- they're talking about this 20-game 20, 20 streak. The A's, of course, broke the uh, the longtime baseball record during, during the when this was all going on. 
and they had Bob Costas come on and intone the fact that 27 Yankees never won more than nine in a row. And, and here was that the A's won, won 20 that season. It was like, well, these, these are statistical flukes. Right. How many World Series did they win? They won basically, I think, during that stretch, they really only won one, one World Series. They were in the playoffs three, yes. four, or five times, but yes. they really only won the championship one time. So. Well, one thing that struck me, we talked about last week's show, was that, uh, that the coin flip for the Super Bowl went 14 times in a row to the, to the NFC. The odds of that are like 8,000 to 1. But, wow. but But these things happen, statistical anomalies like this happen all the time. And in baseball, if you just figure that two teams, it's about a coin flip, they're mm-hmm. roughly equal, then runs of winning eight in a row or losing six in a yep. row are to be expected all the yep. time. doesn't mean you're playing badly or playing well. Right. Well, and you look at like back in 1983, I think it was, the Baltimore Orioles had a 23-game losing streak. So mm. losing streaks, winning streaks, that's, you know, as you mentioned, it, it all just kind of amounts to a coin flip anyway. Sean, it's great to have you back. I understand the congratulations are in order for a new son. Well, Doug, it's been so long that I've been on your show. He's actually 17 now. <laughs> Well, we'll do we'll do what we can to contribute to his college fund. Well, you don't have a lot of time, like <laughs> another year. But no, I, Ethan turned one uh, a month ago. We we're super excited to have him. He's a great kid. So it has been a year since you've been on. At least. Well, yep. damn it, that's not going to happen again. we got things to talk about. So we'll see what happens, where they're going to move the Kings. We'll have to yep. have you come back in a month or so. Yep, that would be great. There's a lot of interesting things going on in sports right now, anytime you want me. That's it for the program. This show is produced by Edward McMillan, as they all are. I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax. Tune in next week for our discussion about that remarkable new silent film, The Artist. Definitely worth checking out. We expect the week after that to speak with author Andreas Kluth about his book, Hannibal and Me, what history's greatest military strategists can teach us about success and failure. <laughs>